Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. AT&T connects and note to podcasts. Connect the alarm, change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze, 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower, lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories, change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This episode of Rodinka, we talk about the myth that basketball killed West Indies cricket. So I got on a podcast that helped explain it. So my name is Michelle Hewitt, and I'm the co-host of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. We talk about Australian basketball, taxi drivers, Patrick Ewing, cable TV, and we show how little we know about Bahamas cricket. I'm going to read out a bunch of names to you now, and I want to see if there's any reaction to these names. Paddy Mills, Dante Exum, Aaron Baines, Josh Green, Ben Simmons, Joe Ingalls, Will Magnay, Josh Giddy, Fon Maker, and Jock Lonsdale. Do you know who any of those people are? Actually, it's Jock Lansdale, I think. I think I might have written that wrong. But do you know who any of those people are? I would love to say that I've heard at least one of those names before, but no. Those are the Australian players in the NBA at the moment. So some of them have just got contracts. Some of them are from Maker and Will Magnate might not have teams at the moment, but those are the players who are over the last, let's say, 18 months or over the next six months will be on an NBA roster. That's a lot of people, Michelle. That's a lot of Australians playing in the NBA. I'll get to the West Indians in the NBA in a minute. I promise you, though, it ain't that long. (laughs) It's no idea. Australia is currently ranked third in the world in basketball. Just won the bronze medal at the Olympics. This is the men's team, obviously. They're uh, very good in the women's team as well. The U.S. Virgin Islands is the only West Indian feeder nation that I could find that is ranked in the top 90 basketball teams in the world. They are ranked 51st, and they have a couple of good players, which we'll come to in a moment. Antigua and Barbuda is the next best. They're ranked 91st. Just for some comparisons when we talk about basketball, New Zealand is ranked 25th. The UK is, oh, what are they called? Team GB, whatever they're called, is ranked 42nd. India is ranked 78th. So India is ahead of Antigua. And if we just want to take it to football for a minute, Jamaica is the top-ranked West Indian football team, which you'll be pleased to know. They are ranked 50th. My point is, man, that for all the talk about West Indies and basketball, 
it does not appear in any way that they're anywhere near even the best basketball nation within cricket, let alone even an average basketball nation within cricket. Everything you say there is 100% correct. And I'm intrigued to see how many names you're going to give in terms of Caribbean connections with regards to the NBA. I think historically there will be a lot of American-born players who have Caribbean parents, but this myth that there's been a a huge, um, let's call it a cricket drain of resources <laughs> into the NBA, it statistically, it just doesn't add up to the point where you would have to look very, very hard to even come up with a team of five in the, from in terms of Caribbean ball. Yeah, at the moment, I think you're right. So there's a lot of guys like Andrew Wiggins, whose I think mother is Bajan, right? Mm. But grew up in Canada. Jamal Murray plays for my Denver Nuggets. His father is Jamaican. And there's lots of great like Jamaican angles to Jamal Murray. But he grew up mm. in Canada again. His father did make him do push-ups in the snow, which I think is one of the most Jamaican father things I've ever heard. And absolutely I'm all in on that story. Currently, he's doing rehab on on his knee injury, and he looks like his dad is still in the background yelling at him to get better. So I'm not saying that Jamal Murray is not inspired by his family, and there's a lot of Jamaican and Bayesian and solution players in the background where they have a parent or a grandparent. That, mm. But what we are talking about, really, I think if we're talking about a player dream, it has to be a player born in the Caribbean, playing cricket in the Caribbean, who is then taken to play basketball. Now... I'm going to ask you this. Who is the most famous NBA player from the Caribbean, would you say? It's got to be Patrick Ewing. That's who I always go for. Perfect. That's exactly the answer I wanted you to give. You get 10 points for that. <laughs> what age do you think Patrick Ewing moved to America? Because I didn't know this. I looked this up for this podcast. So um, I actually do know this, only because of the Jamaican angle here. I think he left at <laughs> 11 or 12 when he left yeah. Jamaica to go to the States. Yeah, he went to move in with his family. He played cricket up until the age of 11 or 12. Went to America. I always assumed that because he's seven foot tall, like he got to 17 or 18 and someone called him over to America. But that's not the case. His story is much more like what? Matt Pryor's story or BJ Watling's story or Manus mm. Labashain's story. Let's give it a cricket angle as we have to do with everything that we do. So you could certainly say that he's born and bred Jamaican. I think that's very fair and very accurate. But he also, he left cricket way before he was seven foot two and, and dunking and doing sky hooks on people. I would say the second most famous NBA player is Tim Duncan from the US yeah. Virgin Islands. Now, Tim Duncan, incredible player, probably even better than Patrick Ewing. Not as famous as being like from the West Indies because the US Virgin Islands is weird. So I'm going to ask you a different question on this. See, let's. I don't know why this has turned into a quiz, man. I, I did not bring you on here to quiz, but... Can you name me a test player from the US Virgin Islands? Do you know what? I'm going to say Hayden Walsh, but I don't know if I've got that right. No, I don't think you're right there. Uh, if it's one not, few... if, are you telling me that there isn't one? Is that Am I trying to find someone when there isn't one? I couldn't find a single one. If, okay. if it is Hayden Walsh and I've missed no, I don't it. Think it a... I don't think it's no. Hayden Walsh. I just know that Hayden Walsh comes from one of those islands. Like He's Antigua. Ah, oh, there you go. Then so I've got it wrong. One of those islands. <laughs> I mean, I looked. I looked up. Do you remember the the Stanford Super Series? Like I looked up even their cricketers there, and mm. like the only names I knew. Every time I knew a player's name, they had come from another island. 
So, mm. you know, you know, it was from St. Kitts or, you know, from somewhere else. I couldn't find a U.S. Virgin Island test cricketer. That's not to say there isn't one, because as you and I both know, the history of West Indies cricket is not brilliantly written online. Yes. Sometimes you do miss players and, you know, you go to the island and you say something and they're like, no, what are you talking about? This guy played a test in 1968 and you go, oh, okay, well. But he played all his domestic cricket for Barbados. They're like, yes, but he's from our particular yeah. island of 12 people. But as far as I'm aware, no cricketers have come from the US Virgin Island. No major cricketers anyway. Let's put it that way. And so that's where Tim Duncan's from. So again, I'm not saying that Tim Duncan couldn't have played cricket. Obviously a fantastic athlete, uh, would have been a brilliant bowler if he could have kept his body in any, again, what is he? 6'11", 7 foot. They tend to be tall, these guys. When I went through it, this is the name I had. And I'm looking at players who have played multiple years Mm. over the last few years. I've taken Patrick Ewing off this list. I would Mm -hmm. put Tim Duncan on this list. We got uh, Roger Bell, Nicholas Claxton, Carl Herrera. He was a really good player. Samardo Samuels and Roy Hibbert. All Mm. of those guys came from the West Indies from the 1980s onwards, right? And played multiple years of being either a starter or a rotation player in the NBA. There's a lot of guys who who got drafted and played a year, a lot of guys who were on lists for a couple of years but didn't even seem to play that many games, all those sorts of things. Mm. If you compare that to Australia, Australia's had two number one draft picks. They've had players who've won a bunch of different championships. Ben Simmons is, you know, a current all-star. That's a completely different level than, you know, Roy Hibbert and Carl Herrera being good players. Like, you can see why they are in the NBA. They're looking to Australia to find players in a way they may not be to the West Indies. Mm. But having said all that, we're talking about just the players who make it to the NBA. There would be a lot of players who are probably picked up from the major islands who go off and play high school basketball and college basketball. That also happens in Australia and New Zealand and and England. Mm -hmm. Um, OGN and OB plays um, in the NBA. He was born in England, right? So, That does happen right across the board. But as far as the top level goes, the West Indies have not been a great talent. There's probably more Serbians playing now than there has been the entire history of West Indians playing in the NBA. And so there has to be a slight drain, but in no way can it lead to the fact that the West Indies went from being the best team in the world to being the, the worst team in the world. Yeah. I can't disagree because, like I say, just the simple stats and the facts and the analysis. I think you're right, though, to say that just because of how and I'm thinking with my again, with my particular Jamaican knowledge in this context, just because of how the Caribbean works in terms of the scholarship system Mm. that exists quite a lot from some Caribbean islands to the United States and Canada, I'm willing to accept that there may be a greater number who might have got a scholarship. But even then, we're talking minuscule in the grand scheme of things. You would think that if you're talking about those scholarships, I would have thought that almost anyone who can run in Jamaica gets a scholarship to right. a college or, 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 or even a high school in America. And you and I both know people who've, who've done that before and, and they go off and they get educated in the States. They quite often move back to the Caribbean. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Let me put it this way. It would have filtered through to the NBA on a much larger level if that was the case by this stage. We wouldn't have been able to see it. And Mm -hmm. I want to get to a few different reasons why I I think it is particularly interesting. One is that we'll get to the the sort of the root cause of how this happened. I I don't know if I found the original article, but I, I did a lot of research on this. But I think a lot of it came about when West Indies stopped having tall, fast bowlers anymore. Hmm. 
So you suddenly mm. had Fidel Edwards and Tino Best and yeah, lovely guys, fast bowlers, Jermaine Lawson. There's a lot of guys out there who could bowl fast for the West Indies, but they were all shorter than me. And you mm. shouldn't be shorter than me and be a fast bowler if you're from the West Indies. You think of, you know, Garner and Roddy Eswick and those sort of big, sort of powerful, like all the way through. So I wonder how much the short, fast bowlers of the early to mid-2000s played a part in the building of this myth. Do you know what? And that's a really good way of looking at it, Jared, because I've tried to understand it. So you've gone down the the short, fast bowler route, and I think that there's um, a lot of validity in that. But I think that's got to be combined with people also just desperately searching for any reason yeah, that could explain why the West Indies weren't very good anymore. That wasn't rooted in, well, let's look at the wider picture of what might be going on in cricket. And I think what I found is that once this idea was perpetuated, everybody just repeated it. <laughs> Nobody mm. seemed to really question it as a theory. And I can actually remember, and I was desperately searching for the archive, but like you've uh, alluded to, it's very hard to find West Indian stuff online. But um, I remember a West Indies tour of England. It was either 2004 or 2007. And Tony Cozier, I think he was over here as like the kind of key figure reporting on West Indies cricket. And it was put to him, the theory that, well, you know, all, all these West Indian cricketers must have gone abroad. And Tony, being Tony, basically went, that's absolute nonsense. <laughs> but that's the only time I can remember someone, whether from the Caribbean or even outside of the Caribbean, openly challenging it as a narrative and saying, well, that's just not true. There's no truth in it. And I think it just, as a result, it just took root. And you you know how things go. Once something takes root, people just assume that it must be true. Nobody bothers to check. Well, wh- where did this actually come from? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this for a long time. I wrote about it on Cricket With Balls, God, probably over 10 years ago now, that it didn't make any sense to me then. But I'd never done any research. And then I saw on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast Twitter account, you guys tweeted about it. And Mm. so I was like, okay, this is my time to go and have a look and see if I can find anything. And so it's interesting that you went to 2004, 2007. There was certainly a big Guardian article around 2007 that I found. And originally Mm. I was like, well, maybe this is the first article. I saw on one of the threads, someone else who works in cricket, whose name I've now forgotten, but he said that Peter Roebuck started the thread. So I Mm. went back and I looked at Peter Roebuck's articles. uh, He's got a website that you can actually trawl through. The only article I could ever see where he wrote about it, he actually debunked it and said that (laughs) it it wasn't that big a deal. doesn't mean that he didn't start it, right? I know he didn't because I can tell you why. I think we can go back a little bit further. I tried to look up the Gleaner archive because I thought the Jamaican Gleaner might be the best newspaper, but their archive just doesn't seem to go back into the 80s and 90s. You can go in and and do it, but that's not really an option for you or I at the moment. And then Hassan Chima, who's the Islamabad United general manager, he said he read a piece in the New York Times from 1990. I never found the New York Times piece from 1990, but I did find a piece in 1995 that ran on the Australian Wires, which has quotes from Michael Holding debunking it. Right. So that means it was already strong enough that (laughs) Michael Holding by 1995 was like, hang on a minute here. What that really means is that it really must have come up from the mid-80s into the early 90s so it's way earlier than you or I or Peter Delapena, the um, ESPN cricket correspondent from America, 
we all probably thought it was an early 2000s thing. West Indies mm. get bad and suddenly you, you find a way. But interestingly enough, it's not. So my theory now is that pay TV probably takes a hold of the West Indies around the mid to late 80s. At that stage, the NBA is a huge part of that. The NBA is pushing themselves around the world. The islands become more American at that point mm-hmm. because of, of pay TV and the music and the crossover and the fact that up until then, you know, the, the islands were sort of English or French, weren't they? Because yeah. of the historical context, they become a, like, if you go to St. Lucia now, no one ever says this, but you and I know this, the most popular music in St. Lucia is country and Western music. And no one ever admits this, <laughs> right? But it's, it's a thing. And that has to come from America because where else on earth would that ever come from? Right. And so my guess is that there was a huge influx of pay TV, and people started watching it, and the NBA pushed themselves. So that period from what was at 1987-88 is when the NBA pushed itself globally, and it mm. also happened to be Michael Jordan. So Michael Holding references Michael Jordan directly in this article where he's mm. talking about it. And so my assumption is that that is the point where uh, uh, the West Indies become more American, and basketball, so the Caricom basketball tournament, as far as I can tell, starts in 1981. Mm. So that is when basketball is starting to get bigger. Suddenly you've got NBA games on the TV. Patrick Ewing, as you said, Jamaican boy, huge star. I mean, he played in the dream team. He's not an average yeah. basketballer. You know, I'm pretty sure he's in the Hall of Fame. His son's going on to play in NBA as well. And so I think at that point, there is certainly, I think it is fair to say that the islands became more American. So I don't think this is what I originally assumed, which was white journalists being slightly racist and thinking black guys like basketball. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Ewing at the end there, because if your theory holds, it would make the relevance of us talking about Ewing at the beginning even more relevant, because the theory has credence if you use Patrick Ewing as your go-to reference point, because then you go, well, of course, he was born in Jamaica, and look, he's gone over to the States. Because when I was growing up, Patrick Ewing, to me, was, okay, I'm not saying he was Michael Jordan, but he was certainly one of the Mm. top five in terms of, he was a franchise player. He was the franchise player in New York. So I could see how you might then want to put the theory to match with Patrick Ewing. But even then, there still weren't enough players. (laughs) It's still not the exodus that you would expect. It's Mm. interesting, like, growing up, I was proud of the fact that Patrick Ewing was from a cricket country. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, So it was a big deal for me. So I can only imagine if you are anyone from the West Indies, especially a Jamaican, and you're looking up. And as you said, he played in the bad boy, or not the bad boy Knicks, but the aggressive Knicks of the 90s. Um, Mm. He played in the dream team. He was a big star. I mean, they changed the draft because they thought that the draft was rigged so that New York got Patrick Ewing. That's how good they thought Mm. he was going to be coming in. But I remember going back to Jamaica. When would I have been there? must have been the first time I was there, so maybe 2012. I'm like, I asked every taxi driver about Patrick Ewing. (laughs) And they were like, we don't give a shit about Patrick Ewing. He doesn't come back. He doesn't even talk about Jamaica anymore. Mm. And so that was about the point I went, I wonder how much that even played a part. It's great to have a Jamaican hero, but if he doesn't act Jamaican, I don't remember him really talking with a Jamaican accent for much of his career. He might have when he was young. He might have at college, for instance. But Mm. by the time he was at the Knicks, I remember him talking with an American accent, which is fine. If he grew up in America, it makes sense. So it's quite interesting. But I want to focus on the taxis a little bit because... Mm. In that comment thread on your Twitter account, someone actually mentions the fact that, you know, Peter Roebuck was in a taxi and he looked out and he saw a bunch of kids playing basketball and he saw no one playing cricket. Now, I've got this theory about sports journalism and it certainly is something that I've come across in cricket. But in sports journalism, you spend an inordinate amount of time in taxis. 
right? You're going to and from the game. You're going to and from interviews. You're going to and from your hotel. You're going to and from the grounds. Compared to a normal human being, I feel sports journalists spend more time in taxis than anyone else. And you always ask the taxi drivers about your pieces, right? Ah. Because they always have local knowledge. They always give you extra stories and whatever. The problem can be when you only ask one taxi driver a story. And as you and I know, taxi drivers are just normal human beings. And they're no different than your uncle. They've got a lot of opinions, taxi drivers. Whether they've done any research in this, I think a lot of this basketball thing comes from why is West Indies cricket so shit to taxi drivers and taxi drivers Mm. basically saying, oh, it's basketball. And then Mm. you're driving around and you see a basketball court and you see a couple of kids on it. So I think there is a link there. I just don't think anyone ever did the actual research of going through and checking how many players are getting college scholarships and high school scholarships and, you know, in my case, looking at the NBA. So I think if you were to ask someone in the West Indies, I could see why someone who hadn't done the research would probably look at American culture and basketball as being a major part of it. Because if you were in the West Indies in the late 80s, 90s, into early 2000s, and you'd grown up before that era, it would have been seen as a very American time. Does that make sense? Yeah, most definitely. And in fact, as, as you were saying that, I was fortunate enough, all my, obviously, all, all most of my extended family live in Jamaica or the States. And I spent pretty much every year of my life between the age of five to 21, I'd say, I spent my six weeks summer holiday in Jamaica. And what's interesting in what you're saying there is I can definitely remember in the mid to latter 90s going out there and playing basketball as a recreational sport. That still to me doesn't tie in with basketball being the dominant sport that everyone's playing. Mm. But I definitely remember it being a recreational pickup game, kind of like on the dirt court that will be round the corner from where you might live. But that doesn't mean that cricket wasn't happening. It's just that I do actually remember basketball being a thing. But again, I think that stands up to what you're saying about Jamaica, certainly culturally, possibly being more tied towards America and sorry, other Caribbean islands as well, as time has gone on. But also I think what needs to be highlighted is the school system across the majority of the Caribbean islands. So If you go to school in the Caribbean, and I'm sure there'll be some Caribbean listeners going, wait a minute, it doesn't work like that in my island, but I'm speaking generally. If you go to school in the Caribbean, sports is huge in the Caribbean. Not too dissimilar to, it doesn't work so much like this in England. And I don't know, you might say, what I'm about to say, you might say, oh, that's how it works in Australia as well and whatnot. But the school you go to in the Caribbean is massive, possibly bigger than the university you went to. So the notion of, I went to this school and I played sport for this particular school is a big thing. Like if I go back to Jamaica now and somebody speaks to me, it's likely that someone will say, what school did you go to? Mm. And that's almost like an opening conversation. So school sport in Jamaica and across Caribbean is similar to college sport in the United States. So there would be basketball tournaments and there would be inter-school competitions, but Because, as you, and again, you said this at the start, Jared, none of the individual countries have a good team. So (laughs) unlike cricket, where you can play cricket for your school and then play for your club and then maybe represent your nation over time, there's a natural feed into the West Indies who are seen as a global team. 
where they're, they're globally recognised. And even football, you can play football and then feed into your nation. And like you say, Jamaica are ranked 50 in the world. You can then feed into the Jamaican national setup. And that's a globally recognised thing. And of course, the biggest thing of all, athletics, mm. which is arguably the biggest sport across the Caribbean in terms of, and I'd say in terms of scholarships to the States, that's the biggest mm, sport um, in the Caribbean. So actually, Jan, weirdly, if people had perpetuated the theory that athletics is causing a cricket drain in the Caribbean, I would have been more inclined to believe that, if I'm honest with you. Mm. Well, one thing I study is the way that leagues and sports find their talent. Mm. And I think you can tell from the fact that there are so many Australians and Serbians, right, and Spain yeah. and France, those are the mm. four places that seem to have the most NBA players outside of Canada, but Canada's basically America. Sorry, Canadian fans. But from a basketball perspective, it's basically America. And so clearly there is a huge push to find basketballers in Serbia and Australia and in France, which would go all the way through. Like I grew up with two guys who got scholarships to play basketball mm. in America. I know a lot of people in the Caribbean. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone getting it. That's mm. not to say they don't get them. It's a, it was a really common thing. If you could play basketball in a club level in Australia and you did quite well at an age group level, there was a chance a high school was going to bring you across. Right. That jump just doesn't seem to have happened in basketball the same way it has in athletics. It's quite mm. clear that, I mean, so many of the, the great athletes from the West Indies are not even representing their own country anymore, are they? They're representing mm. countries around the world. You know, they go yeah. off and study in America, but maybe they go and uh, train in Qatar or wherever it be, and, and they go and play there. From that perspective, if that was the case, we would expect again to see that in basketball. The other thing is that there is actually a great Caribbean, and I'm using this term slightly loosely, so you'll have to forgive me if I'm wrong here, but there is a great Caribbean basketball nation at the moment, but it's the Bahamas. Yes, which is not part of the West Indies, which is that they have their own independent cricket team. Mm. They yes. have a Buddy Heald, who is a fringe all-star player from Sacramento Kings, and they had DeAndre Ayton, who is the star center for Phoenix, who obviously almost won the championship mm. this year. So you actually have probably the two best sort of Caribbean basketballers playing at the moment and not even from a cricket nation. And maybe yeah. that has something to do with it because maybe the Bahamas, and I don't know that much about the Bahamas. I'm not expecting you to be an expert either because they don't play cricket well enough for either of us to pay attention. But mm. clearly that is an island where basketball is really good. They've won a bunch of the Caricom tournaments and they are very good at basketball and they have two NBA players. It's really interesting that they are not part of the West Indies group. Mm. And in fact, to be honest and Please forgive me, any Bahamians who listen to this and Bermudans as well. When I, <laughs> yeah. when I think of those islands slash countries, I think them as very, very US aligned. I don't yep. naturally see them. Yes, they're Caribbean in terms of geography, but I don't actually see them as... When, I, when we talk West Indies, we're talking effectively the former British West Indies or former... In fact, let's not even include the French West Indies in terms of a cricketing context. We're basically talking the former British West Indies. And with Bahamas and countries like Bermuda, you kind of see them as an extension of us. I'm so sorry for anyone who's listening to this. But you kind of see them as an extension of the United States. And I will go and do some more research on it, but it would not surprise me, if similar to what you say about Oz, that there's a more natural scholarship alignment, etc. looking yeah. at that nation for that specific talent in the same way how american universities look at jamaica for specific athletics talent for example yeah. so you'll go where the talent is in the particular sport if that makes sense 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's also worth remembering that Bermuda is absolutely nowhere near the rest of the islands. Mm. It still does have a very good cricket culture. Obviously, they, Delray Rawlins at the moment uh, is a phenomenal player. Didn't quite have a breakout season in the 100, sadly, but he will have a breakout season soon because I think he's one of the most talented young T20 players in the world. I don't know any Bahamas cricketers. I'm not saying they're, they're not as good. I just think Bermuda's slightly better. But I think you're right. I think they are more American islands. So I think we have now thoroughly debunked the basketball ruined the West Indies cricket narrative, even if it did play a small role. And I'm not saying it didn't play a small role because I think the Americanization probably has played a bit of a role here. But I think cable TV certainly had a bigger role. I want to talk about a couple of random ones, though. Your former uh, Jamaican cricket president, who sadly ran the West Indies cricket, Dave Cameron, he said that women PE teachers were to blame for West Indies cricket not being as good. Would you care to add to that one, my man? <laughs> I'm so glad you found that quote, you know. Um, <laughs> I remember the... every, all of his quotes, just in case he... Because every now and again, he runs for a, a position at the ICC, and I'd like to just push them back out so everyone can remember them. I don't know where that comment ranks on the Dave Cameron bloopers highlight reel. Do you know what... Actually, I'm going to say that's probably his number one most scandalous thing. It didn't get as much press, but it's possibly the most scandalous thing he's ever said. But again, do you know what, Jared? Everything that happens with him, I don't even know anymore how to process. Either way, we obviously it's nonsense. And worryingly, him saying that, what does that therefore tell you about his attitude towards the women's? Now you might understand why West Indies women's cricket team got ran into the ground before the refocus on it in the last year or so. I think all I would say about that whole PE line and ultimately things like that is if people are looking for a reason for why West Indies cricket had a massive decline as well, or an additional reason where that comment, and I'm trying my best to help him out here, could be tied to, forget the women's part, that's nonsense, but Mm. it might speak to more about the fact that at the end of the day, the West Indies is a conglomeration of islands and countries and People sometimes forget that each island's cricket board, so whether it be the Barbados Cricket Association, the Jamaica Cricket Association, whatever, is actually responsible for cricket in their country. And I think sometimes we confuse Cricket West Indies with having an oversight of cricket in the region and forget that there's actual individual cricket boards who are supposed to be doing stuff in their own countries. And there's an argument to say that not every cricket board has basically developed the cricket as it should have been within their country. So that they're forgetting Cameron's nonsense argument and possibly linking it to looking at it in that sense and saying, well, actually in each island, who's to blame specifically within each island? Yeah, no, I think that's a very interesting call. I think that what he was trying to say we're not defending him because it's, the, it's, you know, it's the stupidest thing that you could possibly say that women PE teachers aren't pushing cricket in Jamaica, right? But I think the bigger argument you could have is that there was a point in time when almost every major cricket nation where cricket was by far the biggest thing, right? Mm. The biggest yes, sport. Yeah. Certainly happened in England. It certainly happened in Australia. New Zealand, maybe not. South Africa certainly had it for a period Obviously, in Asia, still is in many of those places. And I think in the Caribbean, up until probably 1985, I wouldn't say that cricket was a monoculture because obviously athletics was there, boxing was there in some countries, football was there in some countries. But most of the major islands, anyway, and Guyana, certainly saw themselves as cricket countries first and foremost. What happens as you start to see pay TV and the internet comes in 
is that you can be interested in anything and you can be interested in country and Western music and you can start to have chess players and all these sorts of different things start to happen. It's not so much that cricket was less important. It's that other things become more important and that people have multitude of options. Mm. And if that's the case, and I'm positive that's the case in the West Indies, I think it's happened in Australia and England as well. What happens is that at the PE level, which I think is still a really important part of this, at the PE and the schools level, you start to teach other sports, right? Because naturally, okay, now we're going to have two weeks of cricket maybe, but we're going to have two weeks of volleyball and a week of hockey and a week of basketball and two weeks of baseball and whatever that can be. I think that definitely happened to the West Indies when it opened up through pay TV and opened up to the world a little bit where it didn't just suckle on in England and to a lesser extent, the French boob. It suddenly becomes, they become nations in their own mind and they go and they find their own things that they're interested in. You can see that almost everywhere. That's going to happen in India. Like that Mm. is going to happen in every cricket nation because eventually as obsessed as you get with cricket, you go, there are other cool sports too. Yeah. I think that's valid actually. And again, I'm just trying to look back on my schooling experience and yeah, certainly the two years that I did A-levels in Jamaica, don't want to give my age away here, but we're talking just before the year 2000. <laughs> so, 1974. <laughs> but, um, but I can certainly remember that certainly cricket wasn't a monoculture there. And again, I would argue that when I looked at the sports provision, I would say that cricket was the third in the pecking order. Yeah, off the top of my head, I'd say it was third, maybe even fourth in the pecking order. And I think you're right to say if you rewind back, what, 15 years before that? 15, 20 years? Yeah, 15, 20 years before that, that almost would be sacrilegious to say something. And actually, you and I have had a conversation before when we were looking at a clip that we thought might have come Mm. from a Shield game. The other thing that's interesting is you go back to clips of, even newspaper clippings, sorry, of inter-island shell cricket, the stadiums are packed. And you fast forward to the turn of the century or year 2000, and you're lucky if you get 50 people watching Jamaica versus Barbados on a Saturday, (laughs) (laughs) never mind in midweek. So, yeah, I think you're right to correlate it to, I don't think we should understate the effect of pay TV. And I think even on the basketball level, if we just quickly touch that again and pay TV, the idea is that you can grow up in the Caribbean and you have an English Premier League team that you are committed to. I, and when I say committed, as in like you're there in the stadium with them, yeah. a basketball franchise, an American football franchise. Mm. That's just three sports straight off the top of my head. And if you really want to, a baseball franchise, right? So that's three or four sports right off the top of my head where I know in the Caribbean on pay TV, there basically is one of those sports every single day on TV and you are probably following a franchise within that sport all year round. So I can understand how, with the greatest respect, apart from baseball, those sports are, apart from T20 and ODIs to an extent, those sports are quicker. Yeah. <laughs> those sports are quicker and there's more action. And do you see I'm going with this, Jared? Yeah, so, but also slicker. And, and so Usman Samiadin, who's obviously an editor at Cricket for. He's not a massive basketball fan. He's trying to get back into it. He watched it a bit as a kid. Uh, He must be a a little bit older than me. He remembers, and I can't remember where he was living. He might have been living in Libya at the time. I don't think he was living in Pakistan. But he remembers the NBA action show, Mm. right? If you talk to a basketball fan from outside of America who's around 35 to 45, they all remember NBA action. It was Mm -hmm. a 30-minute 
show, which had the best dunks, which had the funniest stories, which had the greatest interviews, all this sort of cool stuff. It was sent, if I remember correctly, for free to TV companies all around the world, right? Mm. And then the NBA also did a very similar thing. And Lalit Modi stole this for the IPL as well. They would send games for free as well yes. or, or make them so cheap that TV companies were like, well, why would we not put this three-hour sporting thing on? Cricket has never done anything like that. Like, cricket yep. hasn't gone out of its way to try and win. Like, Argentinian fans over, even though that uh, Argentinians have been playing cricket for 100 years, there's no product for them. There's no Harsha Bogle cool, well, a cool version of Harsha Bogle. Sorry, Harsha, if you're listening, doing cricket action. They used to do ICC TV. I had a friend who made ICC TV. It was dour. Like, she used to hit her head against the wall, like, making that show. And it's like... There is a fundamental problem there with the coolness factor. So if you are just switching channels, you can see, as you said, why you might stick on the NFL game or the Premier League game over Pakistan, Sri Lanka in goal. Like, I think that's Mm. a fair thing. The other thing I would say is that I think the Caribbean has one of them these days, has probably one of the most wide sporting landscapes in that football, cricket, basketball, American football, athletics, boxing. There's quite a few sports that they're very obsessed with. It's almost more like Australia or New Zealand, you know, much less than England or India, where England like football and India like cricket. Like, they're very, very wide. And it's not just the sports they're good at as well. Mm. (laughs) Like, as we've discussed, not particularly good at basketball. And yet you go into a sports cafe or a sports bar in in the Caribbean and there's generally going to be a basketball game on if there's not an NFL game on or a Premier League game on and all those sorts of things. So I, I do think that they're actually more open and giving to those sorts of things. And I think there's an advantage to having a multi-sport country as well. Yeah. Yes, I think Australia's missed out on a lot of six-foot-eight basketballers who'd be very good fastballers, but I, I think there are other advantages to bringing in people from multiple backgrounds. But if basketball isn't the reason, and the US thing has played a part, but certainly has not decimated West Indies talent. I think you and I both probably agree with these two. I'm going to put these two bits together. One is that essentially other teams caught up and then went past the West Indies. So yep. Kerry Packer made the West Indies professional. And also they were all playing county cricket and they're all playing league cricket. They were the first proper 12 month of the year professional cricketers. So they yep. developed a lot quicker than the rest of the nations did. And they had a physio and all the sorts of things that you needed to actually get good at cricket. The West Indies had in the 80s when no one else had. That's not to say they didn't have great talent because they clearly Mm. did. But you match that with great preparation and being professional. It's a huge thing. The other thing is I would argue that there was still incredible talent throughout the West Indies into the 2000s. It's just that every other place in the world had academies and had dietitians, and suddenly everyone was professional on a better level than even the West Indies had ever been professional because of what Australia had done. And the West Indies just got completely left behind. And there were probably now absolutely incredible cricketers that came out of the Caribbean from what, 95 to 2007, who just didn't get to develop because they were left behind by the professional nature of cricket. Basically, yes, to all of that. I think it's right and interesting you point out the academy system because I actually don't see how anything changes in the Caribbean unless, and I'm having spoken to the kind of key decision makers in West Indies cricket, I know this is their goal. But effectively, because of the geographic way that the Caribbean is uh, construed, unless there is an academy on every single island, the reality is I don't think we can catch up. Because the biggest issue that the West Indies have, as far as I can see it, well, there's twofold now, but 
at the under 19 level, we're still roughly the same. Mm. As in the gap isn't significantly massive. Like Bangladesh won, the, was it them who won the last under 19 World Cup? Yeah, I think it was Bangladesh. Unless there's been another one that I've missed, but <laughs> Bangladesh can win at the under 19 level. We won in 2016. You're not going to see that at the senior level where West Indies win in 2016 and Bangladesh win a few years later. So at the under 19 level, clearly, roughly speaking, Things are not even, but it's not a wide disparity amongst the nations. Where West Indies suffer now is our infrastructure has been surpassed by basically everybody within reason. And it does not allow us to bridge that gap from under 19 to senior level, which basically has meant for the last God knows how many years. Let's just say I'm going to say 20 and I'll tell you why 20 in a minute. But for the last 20 years, we haven't been able to nurture the players. All of those players who debut basically learn test cricket and international cricket on the job because the domestic structure, both whether ability-wise but infrastructure-wise, if you watch the test match, I know this is recording on a particular day, but look at the test match yesterday with the farcical scenes against Pakistan where we couldn't get the match to start because all we had was some sponges and wheelbarrows. Mm. (laughs) But as much as I'm laughing about it, that alone tells you what i'm talking about we don't have an infrastructure to the jamaican ground staff they must have been wondering why everyone was laughing because that's what it is sponges in a wheelbarrow um to, yeah. try, to try and deal with the situation exactly and like, i don't know if it was you or the podcast that tweeted out it's not an even playing system anymore right and if you go back through the history of west indies cricket it's remarkable that they were ever as good as they were but it's almost all the early success came from guys playing league cricket in the UK Mm. and doing really well and and developing themselves. The next generation did it through county cricket. The next generation had the ability to play rebel cricket and county cricket. Then you have county cricket again. And also at that point, people are playing the West Indies all the time. So the team is developing better because the West Indies team is good. And so if you have a young player, if you have Chandra Ball come into the team and he's got this weird technique, it's like people protect him because there are Mm. incredible players around him. He's not coming into a team where he's the only guy who can make runs. He doesn't have to worry about the bowlers because they're going to sort themselves out. And then there's that gap, right? Until T20 cricket. And that gap is so obvious where that is the point at which all the structures of the West Indies cricket that you're talking about could not overcome the fact that county cricket stopped calling on West Indians because the West Indians weren't winning anymore. And also, they just started picking players from other countries as well, didn't they? Which is, you know, very fair. South Africa opened up to them. Zimbabwe opened up to them. There were other places to find talent. And then you've got suddenly T20 cricket becomes professional and you see the rise of West Indies cricket again. And they're not getting professional because of the CPL, although the CPL is a you know, really good league for local players. They're getting professional because, you know, Nicholas Puran is playing club cricket in America as a professional. Then he's going to Bangladesh. Then he's going to wherever else. He's becoming professional again, the exact same way that Leary Constantine and Garfield Sobers had to do it, which is outside the West Indies playing 12 months of the year. It's so clear that that huge dip, forget basketball and forget all the other cultural things that probably played a part basically comes down to the fact that if West Indies players aren't making money and aren't traveling around playing cricket, they don't develop at home. Yeah. And actually what I would say, which possibly ties everything together, what's quite interesting to me and what I always say to people when they say that West Indies, the decline and the fans not really paying attention anymore. What's, and you've worked in CPL, you've been out there. CPL games are packed. Mm. So I always say to West Indian fans or anybody who pays an interest in the cricket, 
It's interesting that when T20 came about via CPL in the Caribbean, whether you were in Jamaica, whether you were at Providence, which is... And Providence and Queen's Park are insane. Yeah. But every single island, it was as if it was peak West Indies playing. Now, you can't tell me that the talent on the field in all of the CPL editions is the best talent ever. No, because obviously a lot of it is about promoting some young Caribbean players, etc., etc. So cricket... And the love for cricket in the Caribbean, and as you kind of hinted at about multi-sports in the Caribbean, people will turn up. But what T20 has done is T20's managed to capture the fans in two different ways. One, it's short, it's slick, it's sharp, it's moving. Mm. And two, West Indians are good at it. So therefore, the two managed to get the fans back. So I've always said you won't see fans come back in great numbers to test cricket unless West Indies become good again because the format in and of itself has reached a point with the Americanization of the region whereby actually the format doesn't sell itself. Whether people want to hear that from me or not, or I know that's almost sacrilegious to say that test cricket doesn't sell itself, but it doesn't. Well, it certainly doesn't sell itself. It doesn't sell itself at all, does it? That's its whole problem. It's like we could actually sell test cricket really well if we were smart. There are ways to sell it. We don't do it. We just kind of put it on and hope people will turn up, essentially, is what we do. So, yeah, look, I suppose all this ties in. Let's say there is even a smidgen of truth that a lot of young West Indian athletes who could have played cricket went off to get college sponsorships in America as athletics and as basketball, right? The combination Mm. of both, I think, is fair. If that is true, then the fact that Nicholas Puran can make so much money despite the fact that he didn't even play for Trinidad and gets in a car accident and ends up having to play club cricket in Houston or, no, was it Seattle? I forget. Whichever random American city he flew to to play club cricket in. The fact that he can make this money and that Dre Russ makes a huge amount of money and that Chris Gale can afford a stripper pole. All those sorts of things. Surely there is an aspirational thing that Mm. if there's even a smidgen of truth in what we once said, then surely there is an aspirational thing of like now, ah, maybe we should play cricket. So in other words, we've kind of created the thing that maybe never existed in the first place, but done it even better. And it will help cricket anyway. Yeah. I mean, now more than ever, if you wanted to be a cricketer in the region, and more importantly, get financial freedom isn't T20. <laughs> it hurts me a bit because that doesn't necessarily help the test side, whatever. But the point is T20 is your way out, so to speak, to help yourself, your family, your community, etc. So it can't be simply that cricket doesn't appeal anymore because actually, like you say, Jared, the format of cricket to appeal is actually there. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.
If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. Sports Social Podcast Network.